Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening, the gift of a new week and a new day, a new opportunity to gather together and to dive into your word. You are the word made flesh, and so as we read sacred scripture, help us to be reminded that we are encountering you. We are coming face to face with the God who loves us, who desires to know us and be in relationship with us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds, capture our hearts, convict and challenge us, and draw us deeper into relationship with you. Help us especially to know what it means to follow you, to be faithful to you in this relationship. Help us to be good hearers and better doers, and to faithfully respond to whatever stands out to us in this study tonight. Speak to us. We lay this time at your feet, and we ask any worries, anxieties, or distractions that are on our minds or hearts, anything weighing us down or pulling us away from this time, we would just ask, Lord, that you would remove those things as we lay this time at your feet, that your will would be done for this next hour and in all facets of our lives. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come in, have a seat. So we are in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Luke 16, 1 through 13. So this comes right after the gospel we heard this past week. Okay, so we have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, and the scribes. So this is the same scene. So pay attention to that because this passage, as I mentioned uh, before we started, is an often very difficult one to interpret and to understand. And so knowing the context of what this comes directly after is helpful. Also, Jesus is continuing on the way to Jerusalem. Okay, we're in this middle section of Mark, sorry, in Luke. Jesus has been ministering up in Galilee. He's on the way to Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And we have all these different parables and teachings throughout the course of that, this being uh, our gospel for this upcoming Sunday the uh, 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. So Luke 16, 1 through 13, we're going to read it twice through. First time through, get a picture for what is being said. This is the parable of the dishonest steward. Then Jesus also said to his disciples, a rich man had a steward who was reported to him for squandering his property. He summoned him and said, what is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship because you can no longer be my steward. The steward said to himself, what shall I do now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the stewardship, they may welcome me into their homes. He called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, how much do you owe my master? He replied, 100 measures of olive oil. He said to him, here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for 50. 
Then to another he said, and you, how much do you owe? He replied, 100 cores of wheat. He said to him, here is your promissory note, write one for 80. And the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourself with dishonest wealth, so that when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The person who is trustworthy in very small matters is also trustworthy in great ones. And the person who is dishonest in very small matters is also dishonest in great ones. If, therefore, you are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? If you are not trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, we're going to read this a second time. Second time through, now that we've got a sense of the parable. Listen for any particular word or phrase that stands out to you, any details that provoke reflection or questions, write those things down, especially anything that just jumps out out of nowhere as you try and clear your mind of everything but the words of this passage. Pay attention to those things. Act as though the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through those different details, words, and phrases that stand out, and begin to reflect on them. Why is this standing out? What might God be saying to me or asking me to do? So one, time, one last time through, Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Then Jesus also said to his disciples, A rich man had a steward who was reported to him for squandering his property. He summoned him and said, What is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship because you can no longer be my steward. The steward said to himself, What shall I do now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that... When I am removed from the stewardship, they may welcome me into their homes. He called in his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? He replied, One hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down and quickly write one for fifty. Then to another he said, And you, how much do you owe? He replied, One hundred cores of wheat. He said to him, here is your promissory note. Write one for 80. And the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. For the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves with dishonest wealth, so that when it fails, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The person who is trustworthy in very small matters is also trustworthy in great ones. And the person who is dishonest in very small matters is also dishonest in great ones. If, therefore, you are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? If you are not trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Gospel of the Lord. 
Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a fun, somewhat confusing gospel passage for you. Um, I invite you to take a moment to reflect back on the things that stood out to you, the questions that arose as you read through this. We're going to spend some time at the tables. If you're on your own, feel free to join or group up with others. Uh, we're just going to discuss for the next five or ten minutes what stood out to you and why, or what questions did this reading pose in you. If you're watching or listening to this later, feel free to do that in the comments. But for those of us here, uh, take about the next five or ten minutes to do that. And then we'll bring it back to the larger group for uh, group discussion. So, what are the things that are uh, coming to the surface in your conversation? What are the things that you have, I'm sure, lots of questions about? This is a passage that Bible study is built for, so I'm very excited. So, <laughs> so yes, Alex. What is dishonest wealth? Yeah, why should we? So Jesus here, this is in the section where he's explaining the parable, which is something we don't always get from Jesus, okay? So like a lot of biblical commentators and scholars already say that this parable on its own is probably the most difficult in all of the Gospel of Luke. And even then, we have an explanation of it, which we usually don't get. We have the explanation of the parable of the sower of the seed and things like that, but not often. And in that explanation, Jesus says, make friends for yourself with dishonest wealth. What does that mean? Well, first of all, there, there's, there's two different ways to read this, okay? There's reading it um, like befriend dishonest wealth, like be friendly with dishonest wealth. That's not what this means. What this means is make friends by means of dishonest wealth. So that's one clarification, okay? So you can use dishonest wealth to make friends. And the translation of that phrase, dishonest wealth, is... Uh, mammon of iniquity or mammon of unrighteousness. And mammon, which is listed later in the passage, you cannot serve both God and mammon, is a biblical word for possessions, for wealth, for material goods. Uh, in fact, in the medieval era, uh, mammon was personified as the name of, of a demon. People thought it was the demon that personified greed. And there was a, a, a trend in medieval theology to give a name uh, to a demon that represented every single one of the seven deadly sins. Um, it wasn't accurate because some of the titles for the enemy are not uh, names of demons. They're just titles like Satan, Lucifer, things like that. Um, but Mammon, you can actually look up like old Renaissance or medieval paintings of Mammon, the demon of greed. Um, but it has to do with material things. So what Jesus is saying here is that it's okay to use earthly things, things that are not what we're created for, you know, things that are unrighteous, things that aren't, you know, perfect or good necessarily, you can use them for a higher good. Okay, so when you see things like, when you see reality as it's properly meant to be understood as a Christian, this makes sense, okay? Our world has it flipped upside down. But in reality, God is first, and then people under that, and then things under that. So things are meant to both serve people and God. People then are meant to serve God, everything oriented toward God. And God is, there's no like, you know, we can't, we don't use God to serve us to get us things, right? So um, there's these popular uh, shirts, t-shirts, um, and like a popular motto that says, um, uh, love people, use things. I don't know if you've ever seen that shirt. Because culture often promotes the opposite, to use people and love things, right? And so that's what this is getting at. It's saying, like, if we have a properly ordered idea of reality where everything serves God, you can use what is available to you 
to be prudent, to be shrewd, to make plans to try and pursue the Lord. That doesn't mean you go out and seek things that are bad. What this passage is getting at is use what is available to you. Like you're in a situation, the steward is in a situation, he's lost his job, this is what he has available. He has this very mopey, like very emo kind of moment where he's like, I'm too strong, I can't dig, I'm too ashamed to beg, boo-hoo, you know? It's kind of like the prodigal son right before this, like, I'm just hungry, I want to go home. It's like, doesn't repent, doesn't acknowledge what he did was wrong, doesn't acknowledge that squandering his master was bad. Now he's just like, how do I look out for my own neck? And so what he does is he is shrewd and prudent with the situation that's presented to him, and he acts, and that is what the master says was acting prudently. And this isn't the virtue of prudence. The word for prudently in Greek is phronimos. It means like a practical action for a certain goal. So he's being very practical, doing what he could with the situation that he was in, the circumstances he was in, to achieve the best possible good for that moment. So that's what Jesus is saying here. It's like, use your circumstances, act, be shrewd and prudent, make plans, and use what is available to you so that it can serve others and ultimately serve God. So I hope that makes, makes sense. Yes? But it sounded like he was serving himself. That's what was confusing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, he's looking out for himself. So the one thing about parables, a parable is a, a literary style or a teaching tool that is, is not meant to teach you how to act. It's not meant to teach you how to act. A parable uses allegories and analogies to reveal a truth about God or about some matter of faith, okay? The reason why this one is confusing is because it uses a certain type of argument. And it's, a, it's an argument in philosophy that's called argumentum a fortiori, which means an argument from the stronger reason. Okay, now that may sound very um, academic and weird, but an example of this is uh, there's the passage in the Gospels where, uh, where Jesus says, um, which one of you, when your son asks for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? Or when he asks you for a fish, would give him a snake or an egg, would give him a scorpion? Um, you who are, who are wicked, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do you think that the Lord will give good gifts to you? Something along those lines. So that's what's called an argument from the stronger reason. You don't praise the thing that that person did. What you're saying is like, look at this example. And even though it's a really bad example, if that is true in this circumstance, how much better do you think God will act as our master? So an example of this would be like, I see an injustice happening and I get really mad and I punch some guy in the face who's doing something bad, okay? So I could say, you know, it is good when you see injustice happening to do something about it. Like I punched this guy in the face. How much more then do you think God who is just and good will want to see justice carried out? That doesn't mean in that example, I'm saying God is a type of God who will punch people in the face. So we don't use the, the bad you know, uh, actions of the steward to inform us about what God is like. It's a, it's a surface level example to say, if this is true in this circumstance, imagine how much more true it is with God who's perfect. Does that make, help make more sense of this? So it's a certain uh, argument in philosophy. It's not often used, obviously. It's probably why you've never heard of it, because it's very confusing and not always very helpful. But Jesus uses it in this circumstance, and it's used elsewhere in Scripture. Other questions, things that stood out? Yeah. 
I'm just curious, like, what is a steward? What's the their role compared to the master? What do they do? Sure. Yeah. So the master, uh, so this was very common for people who have a lot of wealth, a lot of land. Um, the master is the one who owns everything. The steward, uh, a different translation of that would be like the manager. Okay. The, the word in Greek is oikonomos, which means like house person, house manager. And so if you're the person, like you, you're a CEO, you're in charge of this big company, you're not the one who's like down in accounts billable or accounts payable, or in human resources, like making sure all the stuff is happening with the people. That's not what you do. You have a steward who does that. Now, the word steward invokes a certain representative authority. So when a king would come uh, to town, um, you know, you would treat them with a certain level of, obviously, respect, and, and you know, you'd welcome them. You'd pull out all the pomp and circumstance. When the king's steward came to town, you would do the exact same thing, because it was as if that person was a representative of the king themselves. okay? So the steward here, the house manager, is meant to be a representative of the master having that responsibility, okay? So their job was to make sure that the house was being run in order. Now, this sounds like it's a very vast estate, like a sharecropping situation, because the amounts that people owe are, like, immense. Like, I don't know if you caught this, 100 baths or 100 measures of olive oil. In Greek, it's uh, 100 baths. One bath is about eight to nine gallons. So this is about 800 to 900 gallons of olive oil. I don't know why you would even need that much olive oil, like in your lifetime, but you could bathe in it or something. I don't know, but that's, that's a huge amount. And if that's just the share that you give the master, imagine how much more massive that grove of olives is to produce a yield for you to go then sell for your own benefit. Like it would be humongous. And then the other note for you know 100 cores of wheat um, that is basically equivalent to about 6,000 gallons or about 48,000 pounds of wheat. So this is a huge, massive estate that the steward is uh, in charge of. And then he is uh, accused of squandering. The same word there in Greek, diokorpsion, uh, is used uh, in the parable of the prodigal son right before this, when the son squanders all of his inheritance. Okay. What's that? Yes, yeah. He's a fiduciary, yes, of the master. So uh, that, seeing how important that role is and the responsibility he has, shows how serious it is that he's squandering uh, and, and seeking probably um, almost like a fraudulent or embezzlement type of scenario out of this. Yeah. But how can he be acting prudently if he's... Um, each, like, okay, so he's, instead of being 100 shares of oil, he's now doing 80. Well, he's still taking money from the master. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yes. Okay. So there's a couple different ways to interpret this. Okay. So um, you could think some scholars believe like a steward had the ability that some tax collectors do where they could charge interest and they would be able to pocket that. So that was how the steward made money or the steward was charging interest and he wasn't supposed to be. So that he could, that's what he was squandering the wealth of the master. Um, and this, you know, this is forbidden in Deuteronomy thir uh, 23, verse, uh, let's see, 20. You shall not demand interest from your kindred on a loan of money or of food or of anything else which is loaned. So this was forbidden by the Torah, okay? So he was squandering this wealth. That could be what's happening. It could also be that these people owed such a massive amount that him having some kind of cut, you know, cut, cutting that down, the master would have seen that as favorable because the master would have thought, well, I probably was never going to see this. 
So now that they're actually promising to pay this, even though it's a little bit less, I'm actually gonna get some of it. Whereas before, who knows if I would have ever seen that massive amount. That's also a possibility. Um, I'm one to think that it was, it's the first, that the steward is, you know, he's accused of squandering. So he's obviously like taking some off the top or charging more than he's supposed to. That seems to me to be an ac adequate interpretation and accusation against him. So when he goes and he says, now just write one for this amount, you can see how much he's actually charging for himself. So if you go here, um, you know, how much do you owe my master? 100 measures of oil. He said, uh, here's your promissory note, which is a legal um, document that says you promised to pay this amount. Sit down and write one for 50. That means he had a 100% markup for this poor soul for himself. And the master caught wind of that, that he was extorting money and, and supplies. And he's saying, now that I'm out of a job, I want to make friends with these people so that they can help me when I'm down and out. So I'm going to use what's available to me. I'm not going to take this commission on interest that I had levied against these people. And I'm just going to charge what they actually owed my master so that they will owe me a favor. Okay, so he's, he's undoing what he was doing that was against the Torah. He's being practical. He's making plans. He's being shrewd. And his master is getting the money. So to start to see here why the steward is starting to be seen a little bit more favorably. Okay? He's dishonest. Yes, that's not good. Remember, this is not a parable about how we're supposed to act, but it's a parable about in the situation that they're in, what's the best thing that he could have done? Okay? And then if you see the next one, 100 cores of wheat, he says write one for 80. So it's a 25% markup, and then he waves that so that he can have this kind of practical connection. So another uh, kind of insight as to the purpose of this and how it was received happens right after we stopped reading. Because who's still listening? Jesus directs this to his disciples, but remember from 15, Luke 15, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes are there. And who reacts in verse 14? The Pharisees who loved money heard all of these things and sneered at him. So it's clear he's directing this to them. The Pharisees, they are those in charge, the representatives, you could say the stewards of the law and the house of God to the people. And they have been squandering that role by placing upon all these people additional laws, additional oppressive policies and things that were um, unhelpful, that were demeaning, that were causing them to feel like they weren't worthy. And so they are this steward. And so what Jesus is saying here is like, it would be good for you to, even in your dishonest state, to do everything you could from this moment to start acting prudently as if the master is coming, like the day of the Lord is coming and your judgment time is here and you now have to make an account for what you've done. So it's a, it's a real like shot to the heart to the Pharisees, but it's also something that we can interpret for ourselves and say like, okay, if this is the moment, you know, the moment of my death, and God says, all right, you have to make an account for all that you have been given, all that you were responsible for. You are a steward of gifts of time, talent, and treasure. How have you used it? So again, going back to that argument style, if someone who's like the worst example of this has the opportunity to repent or to use what they've been given for some good, how much more do you then, who are not dishonest, hopefully, can use what you have to prepare for the day when the master comes and asks for an account. Is that starting to make more sense? Cool. Yes. No. So when you said, when it says here, you can no longer be like, you know, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and he, I mean, you could also say he's pronouncing to the Pharisees that they're unworthy of the position that they've been placed in. Like, you're no longer worthy to be in this position. Notice that similar language from last week. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay, that type of similar language. He's trying to tell the Pharisees here that they are the ones who have gone astray, that they are both the son who went and squandered, but they're also the elder brother who had a responsibility and is now preaching judgment instead of recognizing they belong in the household of God as well. So Jesus is really trying to like poke at the Pharisees here and say like, look, like this is directed at you. Yes, it's directed at all of us. We're all sinners. We're all the lost son, but so are you. And you as stewards have not been doing what you were supposed to be doing. So now's the time to act. Even if you are totally messed up, you're embezzling, you're fraudulent, you are not following the Torah, like do whatever you can to start being shrewd, making plans and acting prudently. And it doesn't mean you're going to be able to make up for everything that you've done. And you still might have like this whole, you know, set of garbage actions around your life, but start now and do what you can. That's what he's kind of trying to compel them to do, I think. Yeah. For the children of this world are more pleased in dealing with their own generations than are the children of the light. Mm. Who are the children of the light? So the children of light is a phrase that's used uh, in the Gospel of John, I think in Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians. It's, it's a, a descriptor of the early church, of believers. Now here, the church hasn't begun yet. And so I think what he's saying here is people who are, are following God or those who are on this new way that is not yet codified into a, a full-on you know, separate religion yet, but saying that the children of light are those who are believers, you know, those who, who are saying they follow God. And so what he's accusing them of is like, look, like you, you Pharisees, and maybe even some of you disciples, sinners, tax collectors, like you claim to believe, but you're doing this and that, you're squandering. And now it's time to act because in this situation, people do this kind of stuff all the time out in the world where they're squandering and then they realize like, oh, I need to start being more practical. I need to start being shrewd and prudent and they do what they need to do. So people out in the world are doing this. Why aren't you doing it in your relationship with God? Why aren't you recognizing you need to start looking inward and making some amends, you know, starting to rectify the things that you've done? So yeah, I think the children of light, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, John 12. Yeah. Faye. Okay. So I obviously don't get any of that. Sure. Would <laughs> the people that were standing there listening to Jesus, would they understand what he was talking about? So, I mean, a parable was a common teaching tactic of rabbis. So I think they would have understand understood that Jesus was using allegory and practical examples to try and convey some truth about faith or about God. I think they probably would have also had plenty of examples of people in authority squandering that authority and using it irresponsibly, the Pharisees being one of them. This was a, a very commonly oppressed people, not just in their current life, but think of all the stories of their past, of all these regimes who had come in, taken them into slavery, taken them into exile, squandered their wealth, their possessions, their families, their wives, their children, etc. So this type of practical real-world example would have been abundantly clear to them, so much more so. Um, whether they got you know, like what this means for them. I don't know. Maybe that's why Jesus offers the application because it's a very hard teaching. It's not, you can't always know that you're interpreting it accurately on face value because the parables are very, uses a very different, difficult type of logic. 
an argument. So I think that's why he explains. Um, but I think, you know, there's obviously a nutrition, right? Some people, you know, just like today, it goes right over their heads. Some people get it right away, and then most of us are in the middle. Like, okay, I think I know what he's saying here. You know, and there's probably people who do what we do here at Bible study. You know, it's like after the teaching's done, they go up to Jesus. Okay, I have one more question. Can you explain this to me? You know, like I'm sure Jesus was doing that, like having these little one-on-ones. Like, okay, this is what I meant. You know, the mustard seed is very small. You know, like, so I imagine it was pretty similar. But I think they would have got it. Yeah. Luke. Um, they were teaching devices, but they used real world examples that were practical and relatable enough to where, you know, um, that you could see them happening, but they wouldn't have necessarily been about a real event, you know, kind of like when people be like, so I have this friend, you know, like when we go into that and usually you're talking about yourself, but like you kind of paint a hypothetical situation, uh, to ask a question. It's that type of teaching tool. Yeah. But I also think there's probably there was probably a ton of dishonest stewards at this time, so this probably would have been like. Oh yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're all standing there like, oh, this guy's talking about Frank. We all know Frank. All of his olive oil. Other uh, reflections, questions, things that stood out, Greg. I'm interested to know, like, whatever happened to the steward after the master commended him for coming, you know, uh, you know uh, coming forward and correcting his ways. Mm-hmm. Well, the, so, yeah. What's interesting is the steward does this after he's been let go. So he has to render an account because the master has to be able to hire another steward and give him, let's say, like, the books to be able to say, like, here's the standing of all of our accounts from the previous steward who sucked. So, like, he has to, like, give an account of where everything's at. So he's scrambling not to regain employment, but he's scrambling to do what he can with the resources and the actions that he's capable of at that moment to create the best possible next step scenario for himself. So I imagine he gained favor from these families, you know, and who knows if these two examples, like say this was a real example, these were the only things. Like we can say any, anyone he was practicing usury with, anyone he was trying to gain interest, pocket money from and embezzle, he could have forgiven his portion and just gotten back the master's money. And so he had all these now uncollected favors. And so probably living with or, you know, having meals with these families, trying to figure out how he can get back on his feet. Maybe some of them were smaller masters of their own smaller estates that he could then be a steward of, you know. So he's trying to, you know, he knows he's on the way out, trying to network and see what's available, what jobs, you know. He's on the sites, putting his resume up, figuring out, okay, can I get anyone to bite um, before this really hits the fan and I've got nothing left. So, but again, it's a hypothetical story. So this particular steward probably did not exist. Yeah. I keep thinking the master would have had him stoned. <laughs> yeah, you would think so. But that phrase at the end, the master commended the dishonest steward for acting prudently. That shows that there was something good about what he did, even though he was dishonest. So I think sometimes we think like, okay, what he did after the master fired him was the dishonest part. Well, it could be that he was just dishonest before. That's why he's called the dishonest steward. He squandered his master's property. And now finally, maybe he's being honest and saying, hey, I upcharged you for myself. I'm not going to do that anymore. 
um, pay my master what you owe him, like just the actual base rate, and you owe me a favor because I'm down and out and I need some help. So we don't know, you know, or that could have been a dishonest practice against the master, but whatever it was, the master was like, all right, you know, going out with style, you know, not what I would have done, but okay, like you got me some of my money back, you know, he, he, it was like respect where respect was due, you know, um, even though it wasn't maybe the honest or favorable way to do it. So, yeah. Yeah, there's no uh, uh, prescription in the Torah that I know of that you can be stoned to death for charging interest or squandering your master's property. If you cause like an animal or a slave or a loved one to die or you sell them into slavery and they lose them, then yes, depending on the situation, you either have to pay restitution or, um, you know, if it's a loss of a life, it was kind of like that life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth type of mentality. But it wouldn't apply in this situation. A person is not... Uh, you cannot equate the value of a person in olive oil or wheat, thankfully. So, <laughs> other thoughts? You got us this time. <laughs> you know, it's nice to have a stumper. Um, so, I think that the thing to to kind of in our closing time together to think about in this is what does this mean for us? Okay, we've gotten past of like, what does this mean? What is Jesus getting at here? Why does he present this parable? But what does this mean for you and me? We've gotten to that a little bit, you know, but eventually at some point in all of our lives, we're going to face the master and have to render an account. And you may have heard this term before, stewardship. We throw it around a lot in church circles and ministry circles. But all of us have been given certain gifts, certain amounts of time, talent, and treasure, and we are intended to give those back. We are intended to use those to bless the body of Christ. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 13, it talks all about spiritual gifts. And I think in there is where it has that whole diatribe about, you know, we are all one body, um, but the, the body needs different parts to function. You know, we are all parts and Christ is the head. But I can, I, you know, maybe I'm a hand and I as the hand cannot look at the eye and say, oh, I want to be an eye. Or the eye can't look at the hand and say, oh, I have no need of you. That we all have these different roles to play. And sometimes we can get in the, in the place of like comparison. It's like, oh, I don't have the gifts that that person does. You know, or, you know, I don't know the Bible as well as Matt. Or I can't preach like, like Father can. Or I can't alter serve. Or I can't sing like Bob does. So like, where do I fit? And that's just, it's not a good way to look at the spiritual life. Because you can't spend your spiritual life trying to live out the gifts of somebody else. You know, I can try as hard as I want to be Bob. I'm not going to be a better Bob than Bob is because Bob's Bob. And Bob can be here and teach Bible study and probably do a great job. But is he going to do it like I can better than I can? No, because he's not me. But we spend so much of our lives just generally as a world trying to be like other people. Now, we were talking, we were having dinner as a family last night, and Erica's dad was talking about, um, you know, the, the, what were we talking about? We were talking about the Queen, the Queen Elizabeth just passed away. And that her dad had seen this uh, interview or its commentary by, was it Jordan Peterson? I didn't see this, but maybe you saw this. And he was talking about like why a monarchy is a good symbol. Because, you know, in England, they have like, kind of like we do, we have like an executive branch, a legislative branch, a judicial branch. But we don't have the equivalent of like a, a symbolic branch or a symbolic person. And he was talking about like the value of this. And, um, and that it kind of can rally the people around, even in times where there's discord between all these other different branches. And he says, that's why, you know, politically, 
we turn like political candidates into these like messiahs and why we have this kind of very celebrity oriented culture. We're fascinated because we're looking for like a symbol. We're looking for someone to be like. And when we don't have that, when that's not before us, we're always searching for this and we can start feeling like, okay, I want to be like that person. That's a person I'm supposed to aspire to be. And we have this very, you know, celebrity fascination in our country. And it's not like it is anywhere else. Like we are, we are the best at it because we're really good at looking at the gifts other people have and wanting those, looking at the lives other people have and wanting that, and squandering or neglecting the gifts that God has given us. And so this, for me at least this week, is really going to cause me to reflect on what has the Lord given me? What has the Lord given me that is for others? Or how do I look at everything that the Lord has given me and look at it through the lens of how can this be for others? Because sometimes we think like, I would ask this of young people in youth ministry, like, okay, what are you good at? And they're like, oh, I like to play soccer. And then I would ask the question I have to ask as a youth minister, like, well, how can you do that to glorify the Lord? In the back of my head, I'm like, I have no idea how you can play soccer to glorify the Lord. Like, I don't know. Maybe they'll come up with something. But like, there is something there, right? Everything that you've been given, every skill, every talent, every relationship, everything that involves the person that you are, every facet of your life. What if you looked at it through that lens? Why have I been given this, and how have I been given this so that it will bless others? I was talking to my spiritual director, what day is it? Yesterday. And um, he said to me, you know, Matt, the purpose of your life is not to eradicate sin. The purpose of your life is to love. And that just hit me. Because I think when you get in the spiritual life, you can kind of get caught up in this cycle of like, okay, how do I be better and stop doing the things that I shouldn't be doing? And then you get in this kind of habit of like scrupulosity. Like, I just need to stop doing the bad stuff. But then we stop thinking about like, now that I've stopped doing the bad stuff, like what am I now free to do? Now that I'm free from that, what am I free for? And so the purpose of our life is not to eradicate all the bad things, all the dishonesty even. The purpose of our life is to love. And to act prudently with the gifts that we've been given, time, talent, treasure, everything that we have to love, to bless others, to be vessels of God to the world. And so what does that look like for you in your life? Because all of us, in some sense, have been blessed abundantly by God, simply by the, the fact that we live where we do, and we live in an abundant country, and we have a surplus of wealth and resources. And it reminds me of a, there's a common quote by the rabbis that was used around this time that said, um, the rich are meant to bless the poor in this life so that in the next life, the poor will bless the rich. How are we blessing those with what we have who do not have not, who have not, so that we are not storing up earthly treasure, but we are storing up treasure in heaven? You know, we had this gospel several weeks ago, uh, I think it was in Luke chapter 12, Sell your belongings and give alms. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach nor moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. Obviously not earthly wealth, because earthly wealth always gets exhausted. It always wears out. It always eventually runs out. But the inexhaustible treasure in heaven are the blessings and the graces that come from using the things that God has given us to bless others to multiply. We all have the capability of being the conduit of something like the multiplication of loaves. You know, that story of Jesus multiplying the five loaves and the two fish. 
that if we simply offer who we are and what we have to the Lord and say, I want to offer this for those around me, it can abundantly multiply. But if we keep it for ourselves, thinking like, oh, I want to do this for my benefit, so I get you know, more likes or followers, or I have more friends, or people see me in this way, or whatever it is, then it's just going to get stale and run out. So what does that look like for your life? What does that look like for mine? That's something I think that we can uh, glean from this. And then secondly, pointing back to a theme that has come up several times over the past few weeks, is what am I staking my hope in? What am I staking my hope in? Is it something that is going to run out, something that ultimately won't fulfill me? A job, a relationship, an amount of money, a paycheck, a degree, an accolade, an achievement, an experience, a travel, whatever it is. Do I think I'm suddenly going to have everything once I get to that? I was listening to a podcast today. It was just about this, like this kind of tendency we have to get caught in the cycle of like, oh, things will be okay once we... Everything will be great once we, or once I, move out, find the house, find the partner, have the kids, have the great job, retire, whatever it is. And the question was, once you get there, how long are you going to be able to stay there until you're just doing it again? Until you're asking, well, now, once we, why not now? Why not now? That's why this is so foreign to us, because we think in our kind of very um, Catholic-oriented lens of like eradicating sin, get to confession, like be as holy as you possibly can be. We see dishonest steward and we're like, this guy's got to get his life together. Like, this guy's got to fix himself. And what Jesus is saying here is like, well, yes, but the purpose of his life is not to eradicate sin. It is to love. And in the process of loving, we draw closer to God. And we draw closer to God. Sin cannot stand. Serious sin and serious prayer cannot coexist in your life. One will destroy the other. I'll say that again. Serious prayer and serious sin cannot coexist in your life. One will destroy the other. But if all we're doing is focusing on the sin and saying, oh, I just don't want to do these things, then we're missing all the things that God is calling us to do, all that he's calling us for, to be, how we are to love. And so what are we staking our hope in that is not giving us the opportunity to love well. That is taking our attention and our energy instead of allowing us to give our attention and energy to bless others. And then lastly, how are you being faithful in the positions of responsibility that you have? Because we are all a steward in many different degrees, not just of gifts, but some of us are parents, siblings, Children of parents, we have jobs, or we are enrolled in school. We are citizens of a country that have civic responsibilities, pay taxes to go to jury duty, all those things. Like, how do we bring an attitude of responsibility, of faithful stewardship to all those scenarios? Stewardship is not just about when you're in the four walls of this church. And someone is giving an impassioned speech about how we should increase our financial giving or our tithing or how we need people involved in ministry. Stewardship is a way of life in all that we do. So we pray that prayer every, I think, second Sunday of the month at the beginning of Mass to remind us this is who we are. 
a people of stewardship, people who have been given certain things by God to go out and bless the world. And so where in your life are you in a position of responsibility where you can take ownership of the way in which God is calling you to bless? Do you recognize you have that responsibility as a a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a citizen, an employee, a student? a member of a community, a parishioner, a friend, someone who has certain amounts of time, money, talent, gifts, all of that. Imagine all of that in your box of tricks. And Jesus has just shown up and said, hmm, I don't know if you're living life the way you should be. I need to see an account. And you've got to pour the box of everything that you have in your life out on the floor and MacGyver your way into a situation to say, all right, how do I do what I need to do right now to use what I've been given to love? You know, it's kind of a humorous suggestion. We're doing it more out of survival than out of love, but at least it compels us to act, right? That's what was good and praiseworthy about the steward steward is that he knows what he can't do. And he immediately is asking the question, what must I do? He doesn't sulk. He just says, like, I can't beg, I can't dig, so I'm going to go do this immediately. And yet so often we wait. We wait to act. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I think I said this last week or the week before, we need to be allergic to the word tomorrow. Can't do it tomorrow. Because who knows if you'll wake up? Who knows if the end will come? And I don't mean that in like a doom and gloom, scare you, you know, scare the hell into you so that, you know, you'll start pursuing heaven kind of way. But recognize like tomorrow's not promised. And if we're squandering the gift of today and putting off tomorrow what needs to be done today, then we are not being good stewards of what we've been given. So I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Any final uh, questions or thoughts before we close in prayer? Okay, good, because I'm sweating. All right, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this call to arms, for this call to attention, for this call to action. Help us to recognize all of the ways we've been abundantly blessed. But help us also to recognize that that comes with a responsibility. So help us to recognize how we've placed our hope in things that are unhelpful, how we maybe idolize certain lifestyles or people instead of you, how we may be lacking in preparing or making a plan or committing to love, to act with what you've been given us and help us to look at our lives all through the lens of what is the responsibilities that you've given us and how is everything that you've given me an opportunity for me to love and bless others. Help me to see and us to see everything in our lives Through that lens, how can this help me love and bless others? No matter how surface level or ancillary or insignificant the details of what it might be, all of it can be used to love. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be good stewards of what you've given us and that we would act prudently and honestly, because how much more glorious and righteous will that be if even the dishonest steward is one to be praised. So thank you for the gift of this time and unlocking this difficult passage for us, providing wisdom and your presence of the Holy Spirit here to guide us. So we pray that this passage would continue to challenge us and would convict us and and inspire us, comfort us, and encourage us anew when we hear it this coming weekend.
We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.